Green Teacher's main office is located on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Huron-Wendat, Haudenosaunee, and Mississauga peoples. This territory is covered by the Williams Treaty. If the textbook has something to offer, we'll bring it out, but I don't use them because they usually are based much more on what I call indoor science. The students liked the walks. They called them web walks and they liked them even when the weather conditions were inclement. That was okay with them. They wanted to go outside. And so if I have to give some suggestions to teachers about taking students outside, is number one, get to know your own campus. Teachers have said to me, I would love to take my students outside, but I don't know what's going on out there. And I would say back to them, well, learn along with your students. Testing, testing. Hey, I'm Ian. And I'm Sophia. And welcome to Talking with Green Teachers. This is the Environmental Education Podcast, where we discuss recent developments, big ideas, and creative approaches to teaching green. In this episode... They thought I should be teaching more cellular biology, as an example, of being more college prep. And uh, I admitted that, yeah, when I'm taking students outside and I'm showing them mushrooms and animal tracks and so forth, there's not going to be a lot of questions on their, uh, you know, on their exam for getting a scholarship to college. But I believe what I was teaching may not be college prep, but it is life prep. And they, autumn in the North Woods has plenty of summer woven into its ever-changing fabric. Wildflowers abound, even if spring and summer blooms have given way to late-season asters and goldenrods. Sunlit mornings are marked by dew-covered spiderwebs dotting the landscape. Naturalist author and retired teacher Larry Weber taught phenology-based science for 25 years in Duluth, Minnesota, and his school year always began with explorations of nature in early autumn. Larry joined Ian to discuss the benefits of phenology-based teaching, how he structured his learning lessons, and what educators can do to be more responsive to local nature. I might be breaking rule number one of being a host by sort of getting off track before we even get into it. But when we talked a couple days ago, you were really enthusiastic about talking spiders. So I thought, let's start with spiders before we get into phenology and maybe some added context. There's so many different versions of Spider-Man out right now, but you kind of are like the living incarnation of Spider-Man and you just held up the second edition of your book, Spiders of the North Woods. So tell us a bit about spiders, your spider story. No, uh, Spider-Man has been taken. And so I don't even uh, try to uh, have that label. <laughs> I, I like a couple other labels. I like Web Watcher nice. as being one, or Spider Speaker. I like those two. Mm. Uh, however, I am, uh, yeah, I'm just interested in them. I think this came from our earlier conversation. I realized that it's a topic that is usually overlooked. 
And I think, why? I mean, this is not a critter that's rare. They're very common. And yet most people know very little about them. And what they do know is usually what you get from the news somewhere, which is not too pleasant. (laughs) No. I thought we should see the other side of it. And so that's what it is all about. And your book, Spiders of the North Woods, was a book that sort of filled a gap in the world of field guides. There weren't really that many accessible guides to spiders. It was very limited. And that was certainly my first spider book. And you've gone on to publish a second edition. So it's maybe starting to stick a bit of momentum. Well, I like to think so. And then the Web Watcher book has probably been more accepted than the earlier Spider one. The Spider of the North Woods book, the idea of that was to recognize the spider. You're seeing the spider, you photographed it, you caught it, or you're just watching it, and you can use the book to help to recognize it. The second book, Web Watcher, the idea was there that you can recognize the spider without even seeing it just by seeing the web. And the webs are different with different spiders. In that introduction of that book, I make a comparison to maybe you know somebody or maybe you would do this yourself. You can hear a bird, you can hear the song, and without even seeing it, you know what it is. And the same thing with, uh, you've got plenty of snow there. Same thing with getting out seeing animal tracks in the snow. Oh, yes. You can recognize what they are without ever seeing the critter. Well, I thought the same idea could apply to spiders. We can see the web. No need to be concerned about seeing the spider. You can see the web and you can still tell what it is. And so that's essentially what I did in the web watching book. I think my favorite type of web is the bowl and doily structure. Either that or funnel webs. Those two are pretty neat. Oh, Yes. Yeah. We had uh, some fog this week. And when we have fog this close to Lake Superior, we get fog quite a lot as we get later into summer. And we had some fog this week. And during my walk, I found literally hundreds of webs. Wonderful. They get the dewdrops out of them from the fog. So they're highly photogenic, even though the critter itself is not that much appreciated. The webs are highly photogenic. Oh, they're absolutely beautiful. Mm -hmm. And that dovetails nicely to our broader discussion today about phenology and phenology-based teaching and looking at spider webs, particularly in late summer and fall, is one of the great highlights as you're learning about nature through the year. Let's start off with a definition of phenology for those who are unfamiliar with it. I am uh, glad to hear you pronounce it phenology. That's the same thing I do. I, most people don't. Most people pronounce it phenology. Uh-huh. And the reason, the reason I started pronouncing it phenology is because I found too many people were misunderstanding what I was saying. And they were referring to various kinds of words that, like fin, as in studying fins of a fish or something like that. So no, phenology is the way I pronounce it. Definition, it's essentially studying the changes that nature goes through in the course of a year, the cycle of the seasons. I tell people that we live phenology, a big part of our life. We're always living it. We change the coats, we deal with different sports, whatever it is, we live phenology. We just don't usually call it by that name. True. It's not a super common term 
And it's not particularly common in a lot of teaching contexts, yet you've certainly used it in your teaching. So sort of walk us through your framework for phenology-based teaching. Okay, the idea was that we study nature as we go through the whole school year. I have uh, the opportunity to be with the same group of students from the 1st of September to the 1st of June. And there's going to be a lot of changes that go through those seasons and we are going to study it. We're gonna take a closer look at all the changes that go through the whole school year. And that's essentially what I did. It's kind of interesting. I must have taught phenology-based science for at least five years before I even used the word. Wow. And even then, after I started teaching it, I rarely used the word in the classroom. And the reason for that is by the time the children I teach, 12 or 13 years old, by the time I see them, they think of science as being nothing but a bunch of big words. And I said, okay, let's keep vocabulary to the minimum. And so, yes, it's phenology-based science, but I don't use the word phenology with them very often. And what are the benefits of this type of approach? Because it is somewhat cutting edge, even though it's really just paying attention to natural phenomena. One of the benefits, the benefits are it's just there's something happening every day. It's just a very exciting way of teaching. Mm. There's always changes. There's always something to see in nature. Always. Talking with Green Teachers is produced by Green Teacher, a registered charity in Canada that has been enhancing environmental education since 1986. By taking out a subscription, you can join our global network of passionate environmental educators, receive each issue of our quarterly magazine, and gain exclusive access to our vast archive of webinars and magazine-back issues. All proceeds go back into the organization to support our vision of helping each successive generation of young learners become more environmentally literate than the last. To learn more, visit greenteacher.com. By late autumn, the blooming season has ended and the landscape is cloaked with muted grays and browns. On especially frigid mornings, there might be a thin cover of snow sprinkled with the tracks of attendant animals. What are the key guiding principles of your teaching? Number one is that we don't use a textbook. I am not opposed to textbooks. If the textbook has something to offer, we'll bring it out. But I don't use them because they usually are based much more on what I call indoor science. Okay, I don't, we don't use a textbook. Number two, we study nature phenology. We study it throughout the entire school year. And number three, we go outside on a regular basis throughout the school year. I taught in Duluth, Minnesota, which is known for climatic conditions in winter that aren't too pleasant. <laughs> Cold. And we went outdoors every week of the school year. In 25 years of teaching uh, this phenology-based, I think I can count on one hand a number of times we had to cancel the walks. We would go anyway. If we couldn't go, we typically would go on Wednesday. If something happened on Wednesday and we couldn't go, then we would go on Thursday. But we would still go. We would still go every week. Did you ever get any flack for not having a textbook? <laughs> not really flack for not having a textbook. I got flack for a few other things, but not so much for the textbook. Yeah. 
In terms of your typical week, I'm just so curious, and I think our listeners will be really interested in just what your week looks like. I mean, you've mentioned that you try to get outside at least once a week, typically on a Wednesday. What was built around that? Okay, now, there's a couple of uh, caveats here. Number one is not all weeks are five days. Number two, not all topic, we call it topics that we choose to study, are going to go through five days. Some will stretch for maybe 10 days. Sure. But if we could stick with just the five days, uh, we choose, I, I broke up the school year into 30 different topics that we would look at in the course of the year. These topics were pertinent to what was going on in nature at that time. On Monday, I would start off, first thing would be, what did you see over the weekend? And this was what we called critter news. And we had to follow a few rules. Number one, it has to be something that was live. It was not on TV. Okay. And you know, that a lot of the kids had trouble with that. Uh, number two, it had to be something that was wild. Okay. Next, it had to be something that was fairly close to where we were, not you know, a weekend trip that took them a couple hundred miles away, that doesn't count. All right, we followed these rules and they would, it took a little while, but they got really good at it. They started saying, I saw a crow. I saw a eagle. I saw, you know, a fox or something like that. And we would keep track of them. If it, something was mentioned that we were not too sure of, we would bring out, as I said, we didn't have a textbook, but we did use golden guides in the classroom. We would bring out the golden guides and we would look up what was said. That was on Monday. Sometimes on Monday, they would bring in critters that they caught over the weekend and we would examine those. Also on Monday, I would introduce the new topic. Mostly this was done with just some illustrations. A good example is mushrooms. I always started the school year with mushrooms. Now tell me in your own education in middle school, how much did you learn about mushrooms? <laughs> Very little. Well, it's getting a lot of uh, notoriety right now, but not so much within schools. It's mostly with uh, adult groups and classes and so forth, but not in schools. And so I would start off with it. The students just absolutely loved it. This was something they saw. This was something that was right in their yard. They had very much familiarity with it, but they didn't really know it that well. So we would start off with that. And I would make an illustration of a quote, typical mushroom, naming some of the different parts. And then I would follow that. That's, that's Monday. We introduced the topic. On Tuesday, I would use various means. Usually it was my own photography slideshows. If I were teaching now, I would probably use some photos from internet and so forth, but I didn't have that back then. <laughs> <laughs> I had to make my own. Anyway, uh, I would show them different pictures of different kinds of, I called it mushrooms and other fungi. And then we would look at those and talk about what things to look at. And many times there were things that, yes, the students were familiar with. Then we would go on Wednesday and we would take a walk. And the, the topic was whatever we were looking for. That's what we would go out to see. We also combined weather conditions. When we stepped outside, I'd always say, okay, what do you think the temperature is? And then we had a thermometer nearby that we would check and other weather conditions. And then we would go out, walk and find as much as we could in the course of the walk. On Thursday, I always believed in doing some sort of a follow-up of what we found. The students 
during our walk, the students would keep notebooks. It was a structured walk. It was school. They had notebooks. They had to keep track of what we found. And it was run with a series of various rules. Uh, if you're familiar with uh, Duluth, Minnesota, we not only have cold, we also have some sloping hills. And in the winter, we can get snow and ice and so I had to put down some rules like no running on these conditions and stuff like that. These middle school students want to run to everything they go see. <laughs> so anyway, we had to have a few rules like such. And then Thursday, we would pretty much follow up what we did on the walk and so forth. And then on Friday, students were to hand in a written report about our walk. And then some sort of an evaluation would take place on Friday. The evaluations were often questions. I would show them a picture and I'd ask them some questions about the particular a fungus or a particular topic, whatever we were looking at. That's the course of one week. Now, many times we found lots of stuff and many times the topic would stretch into two weeks. But I found the mentality of the students, they couldn't carry the concept greater than two weeks. So two weeks was about as far as we would go. And then once again, we're pertinent to whatever's going on at that time of year. Page 27 of my book, I list all the topics that we did for the entire school year. And like I said, it was 30 different topics that I developed in the course of my teaching. On um, the second topic we would do in September was raptors. We have in Duluth, we have Hawk Ridge where there is a raptor flight. Right. So it's 15 minutes from school. So we would take a quick trip there and do some counting. And then that's followed by fall wildflowers. Fall wildflowers is another topic that often gets overlooked. For sure. And part of that is because so many of them are non-native plants, but there's a lot of native plants too. So then we look at deciduous trees, which is often seen in autumn. Then we would talk about insects and spiders. Now, the reason I chose insects and spiders at that time is because uh, the insects that are around by the time you get to October are insects that are either going to die or hibernate. And there's a lot of insects you're not going to be seeing, but you still see some. And then, of course, there's always going to be some spiders as well. We had a, a pond about a quarter mile from school, and uh, we would walk there three times in the year. One of them was fall, another one winter, another one spring. Anyway, you see how it works out. Everything in the, you know, the entire school year we were able to go through looking at topics of what was going on. Once snow started to cover the ground, I thought we had just a gold mine. I have often been amazed at how many teachers don't take advantage of that. It is just great. Every day there are messages written in the snow. <laughs> Indeed. Every day. And, you know, we get out there for perhaps a half hour or more and we see what's going on then. We are not out there the other 23 and a half hours, but somebody else is, and they leave their messages. And we did a lot of looking at tracks once the snow was on the ground. But anyway, it goes on and on like that. The entire school year was all divided into these different topics. I know I would have been a very happy student in your class. Well, I hope so. The students liked the walks. They called them web walks and they liked them. 
even when the weather conditions were inclement. That was okay with them. They wanted to go outside. And I remember one day we had a temperature, now this is in the Fahrenheit scale, but we had the temperature slightly above zero and it was uh, pretty chilly. We also had deep snow to go through. And so it was a pretty tough walk. And one of these students comes up to me afterwards and she says, that was the greatest web walk we had all year. You know? so, so they accepted it. They're more resilient than we think. Yeah, exactly. Hey, it's Ian. I'm just letting you know that a subscription to Green Teacher also includes access to our massive and fast-growing archive of 500-plus ready-to-use activities, lesson plans, and articles. The recording of each new webinar goes into the archive, too, and there are 125 of those and counting. To save you time, everything is organized by topic and age group. Learn more by visiting greenteacher.com slash subscribe. We also have special rates available for bulk orders from your school, board, district, faculty of ed, or organization. As always, all proceeds go back into the nonprofit. There's still plenty of snow on the ground as winter gives way to early spring. Tracks in the snow are plenty, and the first few birds have begun to lend their voices to the beginnings of a dawn chorus. You write in the book that you have at times been criticized for not teaching to state standards. What was your typical response to that? Well, I could easily give a cop-out by saying I taught at a private school and standards were not held over us. Right. However, we have other standards. At a private school that's so-called college prep, they thought I should be teaching more cellular biology, as an example, of being more college prep. And uh, I admitted that, yeah, when I'm taking students outside and I'm showing them mushrooms and animal tracks and so forth, there's not going to be a lot of questions on their, uh, you know, on their exam for getting a scholarship to college. There's not going to be a lot of questions about that. But I believe what I was teaching may not be college prep, but it is life prep. And they, it's the kind of thing that sticks with you. You see something and you remember it. And I think... Part of it is cultural because it's just been so undervalued in contemporary society, at least in our part of the world. Why do you think that is? I mean, why has nearby nature sort of just become wallpaper that's there that we don't spend as much time looking at? You know, that's a hard question to answer, but I will try to answer it in a couple of ways. Number one, nature itself, going out to see nature for its own sake. They seem by only nature nerds or nature freaks. Uh, it, it doesn't seem to be a regular thing that families will do. If they're going to get into nature, the idea is either it's going to be some play other place or some other time. There is nothing going on in nature around my house, that kind of attitude. Uh, I attended a talk at a teacher conference one time where the person giving the talk had uh, sent a questionnaire to teachers about what kind of places would you want to take your students to. They range from 
totally urban to totally wilderness. Number one on the list was state parks or provincial parks. And, and I understand that. That's, that's where I take the students often. Yeah. I understand that. That was no surprise. Number last on the list was the surprise. It was the campus itself that they wouldn't bother to take students outside. They don't think there's anything there. And so if I have to give some suggestions to teachers about taking students outside is number one, get to know your own campus. And with costs of uh, traveling and, and gasoline and so forth going up, stepping outside the door and walking around is a good alternative. It's amazing what kind of diversity is even on a lawn. I mean, if it's overly manicured, it might be a monoculture, but if it hasn't been completely manicured, there's a tremendous variety of plant species and insect species that you can find on a yes. pretty standard lawn. Oh, yes. Yep, I agree with you. Yeah. Hi there. You might recognize my voice from such podcasts as the one you're listening to right now. Speaking of podcasts, Green Teacher is involved in another one. It's called Earthy Chats, and you know what? How about I let my co-host, Jade Harvey Barrel, tell you the rest? Take it away, Jade. Thanks, Ian. Hello, all. Indeed, we'd love for you to join us for Earthy Chats, our new podcast where we've come together to spend time picking the brains of the brightest and best in environmental education. Like busy bees, we'll be cross-pollinating ideas across our range of interests and knowledge bases to give you the inside scoop on what's new, who's doing it, and how you can do it too. All of the experts featured on the show have resources available Canada-wide in the Outdoor Learning Store. That's Canada's non-profit outdoor resource store. You can check out the range of educator and student resources available at www.outdoorlearningstore.ca. So whether you're a teacher, educator, parent, or just a general nature geek, there'll be something for you to sink your teeth into. Did I cover everything there, Ian? Definitely. Thanks, Jade. So yeah, Earthy Chats. Check it out on your favorite podcast app. On the cusp of spring leafout, the dawn chorus has swelled noticeably and wildflowers like trilliums and violets are abundant in hardwood forests. So in terms of tools and resources for teaching phenology-based science, what would you recommend? I mean, your book, of course, but in addition to that? Uh, probably just taking time to look. And I carry a notebook with me all the time. Now, many people have smartphones, but that's okay. And keep records of what you see. That's a pretty powerful topic, pretty powerful thing and just getting out regularly to take a look. Regularly doesn't mean once a month, it means a lot more than that. I believe in daily. Now you have, you can't take, well, you could take students out daily, but I don't recommend it. I recommend students going out about once, maybe twice a week. However, the teacher could go out themselves on a regular basis. I list in the book 10 different suggestions about how to teach phenology-based science. And one of them is, is that you learn along, with your, learn along with your students 
nobody's going to know everything. <laughs> I have had teacher conference where teachers have said to me, I would love to take my students outside, but I don't know what's going on out there. And I would say back to them, well, learn along with your students. And you don't have to hang a name on everything. If you see something and if it looks like a, a little brown bug, well, why don't you call it a little brown bug and then watch it for a while, whatever it's doing. I think, the, I think that's what it's really all about is learning to watch and appreciate nature that's nearby. Yeah. And in terms of record keeping, I know you wrote in your book that you've been keeping records consistently for decades. I mean, you must have just a tremendous resource bank of data. Yeah. You want to do something with them. I'm getting a lot of them. My wife thinks I got to do something with them. <laughs> yes. I started keeping a daily nature journal on January 1, 1975. Wow. That's not a misprint. 1975. And I have never missed a day. That's both inspiring and instructive. And, and I'm envious. But it's also frustrating. I don't tell that. When I give teacher conferences, I don't tell that to the teachers. I think they feel like, oh my gosh, I can't do anything like that. No, I just tell them, keep your own records and do it as much as you want or as little as you want. It should be enjoyable. If you feel like it's something, a chore that you have to do, then you're missing the idea. Yeah. And in terms of being able to keep records with a class, I know you mentioned in the book having your, your first and last lists for things like blooming yes. of wildflowers or arrivals or departures of migratory birds and yes. all of those sorts of signals. I mean, that is very doable, even if it's just at a basic scale, like the first robin of the year or the first song sparrow heard singing or the first trillium blooming. Yeah. Or during a walk in an urban area, something like, when do you see the grass green? When do you see somebody out mowing a lawn? You know, things like that. As I said, we live the phenology a lot more than we think we do. We do. Well, any final thoughts or advice for listeners? Yeah. Get out and see nature. <laughs> it's as uh, simple as that. Yeah, I can't think of a negative thing about nature. Now, there's a lot of people who do, but don't ask me about that. I don't see anything negative about nature. I see it extremely positive. I was giving a walk with a local TV station cameraman one day out in a field where there was lots of spiders. And we were chatting about it. And I was saying, oh, look at this and this and this and this. And finally, he says, can you ever say anything bad about spiders? And I said, no, I cannot. There's nothing, there's nothing bad about spiders. They are misunderstood, they, but they're just outstanding animals, as is many things of nature. Well, you've certainly helped me learn a lot more about spiders, and I thank you for that. And I thank you for your time today in having this discussion about phenology. I'm inspired to go for a walk in my local area and look for some signs, whatever they may be. Well, another suggestion I would give is I do a daily walk every morning. And I, to me, that's the way to really experience the morning. There's always something that's going to be happening. And it might be, usually it's small, but sometimes it's rather large and significant. And of course, not everybody lives the kind of place I do, but nevertheless, there are things to see. There always are. Well, thank you so much for your time, Larry, and sharing your stories and for the books. I hope there are many more to come. Well, we'll see. <laughs> I agree with that, but my publisher is a little bit slow. So anyway, okay, thank you. Come meet summer. 
evening walks are quieter as the breeding season for most birds winds to a close. Crickets and katydids are becoming more noticeable, and the last few fireflies are still dazzling with their bioluminescence. There's even a chance of glimpsing the first signs of autumn with the blooming of an early goldenrod, the first species of goldenrod to bloom each year in the North Woods. Talking with Green Teachers is co-hosted by Ian Shanahan and me, Sofia Vargasnesi. Ian is the show's writer and editor. Logo design is by Devin Terian. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or iTunes to get instant access to each new episode. If you really like the show, give us a rating too. We can also be found wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining us in this episode. We'll chat again soon. That book came about because I was out walking and I would go by these patches of goldenrods and I would hear all this buzzing. And so I decided to stop and take a closer look. And that what that book came about from about two, maybe three different late summers where I would go out and walk around and stand in the patch of goldenrod and photograph whatever I was seeing. And uh, yeah, you're right. People misunderstand goldenrods. Yeah. But it's, the book is not about goldenrods. It's about the critters that are in the goldenrods. Mm-hmm.